Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, Jesse Kramer here. I recently recorded an interview with Justin Peters on his podcast, The Struggle is Real. And I just thought it ended up being a tremendous conversation. I I really enjoyed it. And uh, the final product, I think, was packed with a lot of interesting info that that can help people. So Justin and I were speaking recently, and he offered to let me publish that interview in its entirety here on the Best Interest Podcast. And that was an offer I just couldn't refuse. So without further ado, let me introduce you guys to Justin Peters, and you can listen to our awesome conversation on his podcast, The Struggle is Real. Taking into consideration that you were only a walk-on to your athlete, I want to hear about a glorious moment when you represented University of Rochester as a squash player. And feel free to like embellish the story a little bit. I'm looking for like <laughs> a crazy match or like a move that happened. I don't know a whole lot about squash, yeah. so I was it, it really piqued my interest whenever I heard you're a squash player. That's a that's a fun question. And then, man, you've you've done your research. I always I always find it interesting when I'm listening to like Tim Ferriss podcast, and the guests will be like, "Holy cow! Like, how do you know that? Like, you how do you find <laughs> that research?" But yeah, so walk down the team. So I think one memory that sticks out for me was it was. One of my earlier matches, and we were playing a university up here in upstate New York called Hobart. And it's a fairly small school. Rochester as a team was ranked much higher than them. But, but still, like the kid that I was playing from Hobart, he had been playing for much longer than me. And so then even though my teammates were all heavy favorites in their matches, I certainly didn't feel like a favorite in my match because I'm new to this sport. And then early on in the first game, I, I hit this particular shot that in, in squash, it's called a, a nick, just like someone's name, a nick. And basically all that means is that you, you hit the ball so that instead of kind of bouncing into the floor, it bounces into the joint between the wall and the floor. So if you hit that joint perfectly, rather than the ball kind of bouncing up, the ball will tend to, to roll or at least have a very small bounce. So if in the goal of squash is to get the ball to bounce twice before your opponent can get there, just like tennis type thing. But if you hit the nick, the ball is going to essentially roll and, and it's, your opponent's not going to be able to get it. And it's much harder said than described, especially if it's like flat like a pancake. Is it like that'll only happen like, you know, five times in your life as a squash player. So there I am in like the first game of a, of a, of a real match and I just go for it, and I hit, like, to this day, the best nick of my life, like, literally <laughs> flat as a pancake. And my opponent just looks at me, and he's like, gee, like, he just kind of gives me this look like, man, you, you, you of our guys are really good at squash. And I look out <laughs> at the assist, my assistant coach, who's outside the glass watching, and he gives me this look like, dude, like, what the hell? Like, that was a world-class <laughs> shot. And granted, it's just one shot in a match that has hundreds of shots in it. But Mm -hmm. like literally my opponent, I watched my opponent become deflated and he's like, yep, I'm playing against this world-class UOR team. And meanwhile, (laughs) on the inside, I'm like, well, they're world-class. You think I am because of that shot, but I'm not. And anyway, 
I ended up winning. <laughs> did you end up? Uh, yeah. Okay, ended nice. Up winning the <laughs> I was just about to ask that. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't really understand how you got into squash too. I know you were a walk-on and, and it seemed like you got pulled in. Did you have a friend on the team or what what led you into it? Yeah. So I had a couple a couple guys who lived in my dorm were you know, top five in the USA as junior players got recruited to play at U of R. And so I knew them from freshman year. They were just a couple, a couple guys who I knew. And so I knew they were on the team. And then me and a few just random athletic buddies, we would go down and play just for, for fun. Like we were terrible. We knew we were terrible, but we're like, okay, it's a weird sport. It's a new sport. It's a good workout. Let's, let's do this. And so for the, Freshman and most of sophomore year, we just kind of played for fun, but eventually got to the point where like, okay, we like beating each other and we're interested in learning strategies to beat one another. And then I got lucky as one does the way a lot of life unfolds. It's it's just kind of luck, right place at the right time. So Harvard, Trinity, Yale, these big time programs in squash, they all carry 20 players on their team, 10 varsity, 10 JV. Our coach at U of R, he's like, you know what? I want to emulate that model. I want to be able to have JV competitions when we play these big schools. So he wanted to expand his roster to 20. And the problem was there were only you know, 17 guys on U of R's campus who had ever really played competitive squash before. So those last three spots, he just needed warm-blooded, enthusiastic volunteers <laughs> who wanted to play. And I got the last spot. So here That's I cool. am with no background, just kind of some, you know, raw athleticism from other sports, but I showed up to practice every day. I got coaching from a world-class coach. I got to mingle with guys who actually knew what they were doing. So I learned a ton through osmosis. And I think it's fair to say I became one of the guys on the team who at least spent the most time on court where, you know, it was two hours a day of actual practice. And then I'm spending two more hours a day on my own. And it was not easy, but it was natural from that time on court to at least catch up from being the 20th best guy on the team to the time I graduated, I was playing at eight, nine, 10 in the the top 10. So yeah, it it was just right place, right time, took advantage of the opportunity that was presented to me. And that's the way a lot of life works, I think. And then you loved it so much that you went back and worked as an assistant coach? Correct. Correct. Wow. Exactly. So, I mean, <laughs> like I, I still, I played yesterday, like I played yesterday uh-huh. just against a local guy. It's still, it's my number one form of fitness. It's very fun. Uh, and in some cases, giving lessons to little kids, it's also a form of financial compensation, but really it checks all the boxes. And yeah, I plan on playing until my legs don't allow me to play anymore. That's so cool. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe that. I heard that story and I was just like, of course, like that's just craziness. And I love that. <laughs> right place, right time, man. It's, it's the way a lot of life works. Yeah. Well, Jesse, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. Really excited for this. I always love my personal finance guest and you're no different. I mean, I've loved consuming all of your content. I've actually saved a lot of it for, you know, further research after this conversation as well. And your blog is just, you know, world-class, man. It's so fun to read. You really bring your personality into it. I enjoy it. Kudos, man. You got nominated for Blog of the Year by Plutus Awards, which is kind of a big deal in our space. How does that make you feel? Justin, I thank you for having me on. Thank you for all those kind words. The Plutus Award nomination is a little surreal. Definitely a, a huge combination of thankfulness, graciousness, vindication, and motivation for like, you know, 
it, it makes me feel good about the work I've put into the blog in the past. And, and it makes me feel thankful for all the readers who have helped me get to this point. And yeah, it's, it's rekindled the, the fire underneath me to keep me going for the future. It's crazy that this all started out with just conversations with colleagues. If, if I have the story right, you were 22, out of college, started as a mechanical engineer and you know $50,000 in student loan debt and auto debt, and just trying to figure out what do I need to do with finances? Like what, what do I need to do moving forward? What are the right decisions? And you would have conversations with colleagues and then that would always stim you out to go and do further research and then come back and you would summarize your research and you would send that over to your colleagues. You seem like, like somebody that's just like obsessed, similar to your squash story earlier too. You were just obsessed with, with personal finance and learning more about it and, and really diving deep into it. And then it seemed obvious to me, but I guess it wasn't obvious to you until a colleague pointed it out that, Hey, you should just publish this for other people to read, you know, or, you know, make it easier for us to share out. So that ended up obviously leading to, to the route of you starting a blog. Any gaps to fill on that or, or whatnot? No, it's, that's a perfect description. I mean, like probably a lot of your listeners, I was a little bit lost in my own personal finances. I commiserated with coworkers, just like you described. And those quote unquote water cooler talks turned into follow-up emails that sometimes went into the nitty gritty or, or provided some cool graphics to go along with them. And those follow-up emails eventually turned into blog posts. And that's how the best interest started and really started with no particular aspirations or, or high hopes, but quickly became something that was very fun for me. Like I, I love writing. I love the process of writing. I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with the term SEO, which stands for search engine optimization. So some websites out there, they write to let Google know, hey, you should send readers to my website. And that's, that's perfectly fine. That's a great way to run a business as a website. But for me, I just love writing about things that I find mentally stimulating, you know, finance and investing topics that I find interesting. And what I've found is that I'm not getting maybe the Google traffic that some of the big websites get, but I've, I've kind of grown this grassroots audience that enjoys the same things that I enjoy. So I like writing about these topics and I found this audience that likes reading about these topics and it's a very happy marriage. And you were obsessed so much so that you ended up changing careers, you know, most recent, was this last year that you made this, tra this transition? It was around this time last year that I started the conversation where I basically, okay. I was, I was at that point, seven years into my engineering career and I, I call my engineering career lukewarm you know, a six out of 10, a seven out of 10. I enjoyed it most of the time, but not all the time. But what I really enjoyed was writing these articles after work and, and you know, interacting with my readers and, and anything having to do with, the, you know, appearing on podcasts like this one, anything that had to do with the investing side of things, that's what I enjoyed. So I started some conversations. I'm up in Rochester, New York. So I started some conversations with some, uh, some local people who I knew who were in banking or who were in real estate investing or who, who worked in wealth management, just anything that had to do with finance. And I said, hey, what would a path look like to work at your company, to work with you? What would I be doing? How do I get there? And some of the paths were, were very difficult. Some of them took years of work to get there. Other paths ended up in places that I didn't quite feel comfortable because you know, not every job in the financial industry do I feel like actually looks out for 
the end client or the end user's best interest, mm -hmm. right? So some, some jobs, I'm like, you know what? I, I just don't want to do that. And thankfully, by the end of 2021, I had found a firm that I, I loved the work they do. They had a role that, that fit really, really well with my skill set, meaning, you know, writing, communicating, working with people one-on-one, -on -one, helping them understand financial basics. The cherry on top was that they were like, yeah, we, we want to hire you. If you want this job, it's yours. So it was a very, it's been a very happy marriage so far. So I'm seven months in, I started in January and I love coming to work every day. What was once lukewarm is now boiling hot in a good, in a good way. <laughs> you know, every day is a 10 out of 10. Yeah. Well, good for you and hat tip to you for making or taking those steps, because as you mentioned, you were lukewarm and making a significant amount, amount of money as a mechanical engineer. And there's a lot of safety and security around that. And it takes a lot of bravado to go out and change things because you have an intuition that you might like it more. And, and our good friend, Joel Leary also agreed. I reached out to him prior to this, this, and I just asked, Hey, what, you know, a question you'd ask him or a thought that you have on him. And I'll read verbatim here. He said last year, he he did a ballsy move of switching careers and jobs to something that he's more passionate about. This was a pay decrease for him in, th in the short term, but has a significant upside potential for him in the long term. That sums up Jesse's general thinking that he is able to calculate life moves in a wise and long-term thinking kind of way. He is completely okay sacrificing the little things now in exchange for the bigger things later. So first, can you confirm that that's a fair assessment of you? And then second, anything to add to this? I can confirm that Joel O'Leary is awesome. If you, if you guys, <laughs> Justin and I know it to be true. And any of you listeners, go check out 5amjoel.com. Yeah. Joel is one of my favorite humans. He was, he was also on the podcast too. I think episode 31, we'll talk a lot, but you know, if you really love this conversation, you'll probably love that conversation with Joel as well. Awesome. I can confirm that what Joel said there is, is more or less true. I took a pay cut to switch careers. The engineering path like you said, Justin, was, was well-paid and was not cushy per se, but comfortable in that. Like mm -hmm. I, I, my job security was sky high. Whereas at this job, not only is there a pay cut, but to some extent, it's, it's part of my role here is, is business development. Meaning I'm, I'm out in the community, I'm talking to people and, and sure, I'm, I'm writing on behalf of my firm. I'm working with clients of the firm already, but I'm also expected to bring in new clients who, who need our help, who are a good fit for the firm. And that's a kind of pressure that engineers very rarely have to deal with. But I just kind of looked in the mirror and said, I believe in myself. I know I can work hard. One of my favorite parts of this job is that a lot of it is built on trust. A lot of it is I'm sitting across from a potential client and I need that client to trust that them coming to work at Cobblestone is the name of my firm that them coming to work at Cobblestone is a very trustworthy relationship because they're often putting a lot of money, a lot of their life's energy in our hands. And I can look at myself and say, you know what? I think I am trustworthy and I think I can help people understand that. So I think in the long run, I'll be good at this job. But it's a scary interim, that intermediate time between the, the, the safety net of engineering and whenever that, that long run here at Cobblestone occurs. It's a test. It's a test. So, so far, so good, but the results don't come overnight. And that's another hard part. I think for anybody listening to this is when you find yourself in a, in a job or any kind of opportunity in life where the cause and the effect have a long time period in between them, it, it's really challenging because 
you don't get that positive feedback that you're looking for right away. And so right now, Justin, I'm in this point in my career where I'm like, you know what? I think I'm doing the right things. My management team here is happy with what I'm doing and they think I'm doing the right things. But some of these relationships might take years to form or some of this trust might take years to form. So I don't really get all the positive feedback I'd like to get until 12, 24, 60 months from now. So it's, it's been an interesting change. Yeah. And we could probably extrapolate that concept out and apply that to finances as well. Totally. I mean, just the concept of compounding interest, you really don't see a lot of the immediate returns, especially if you enter investing in a recession or in a down period as well. You might see some negative impacts from the get-go, but more times than not, almost every time, you know, if you're a long-term investor, you will see the positive returns and, and you'll see compound interest take it, take its effect. Yeah. I mean, one, I, it's one of my favorite topics to write about is, is the idea that not everything in investing is golden all the time. And this was, it was a great topic to write about for like 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, when the market was on this multi-year bull market, everything was kind of increasing. It was very easy to be making money as an investor, especially as a, as a stock market investor. And I was writing a lot of topics to my readers being like, hey, let's, let's zoom out a little bit. Let's look at long-term averages. Let's look at some kind of bad periods in market history. And let's try to put some perspective on what we're seeing here. Because I was having conversations with a lot of 24, 26, you know, a lot of young adults who are like, yeah, it's pretty easy. I put my money in the market. I get my 15% per year. Based on that, I should hit financial independence by age 34. I'm like, okay, time out. Let's go back. You said my 15% per year. Let's talk about that, right? Like that's not necessarily a realistic expectation of, of what the stock market will give you. It, it happened to be true for 2018 and 2019 or whatever the years were, but that's not realistic going forward. And yeah, there have been some periods in stock market history where you could very easily put this steady drip of money into your investing account by some diversified, let's say S&P fund and five years later, have less money than you put in. Even 10 years later, have less money than you put in. The stock market has had 10-year periods of real negative return. But when you zoom out to that 15, 20, 30-year timeline, that's where you start to see this thing called reversion to the mean, where very bad periods often revert to the mean and, and are followed by quite a good period. What we might be seeing here in 2022 is a very long, good period from 2012, roughly, until 2021, is now reverting back to the mean of around uh, 10% return per year. That's been the long-term average of the S&P 500. So it is good, Justin, to, to remind people that you oftentimes can be doing the right thing today, but you might not see that really good result until a few years from now. Yeah. And I've been having lots of conversation recently, especially this being maybe one of the first recessional periods of, you know, young investors careers as of right now. I mean, we had the blip in, in 2020, but that rebounded quickly and rebounded, you know, statically pretty quickly as well, you know, by the end of the year and into 2021. But yeah, just a lot of reassurance too. And honestly, for myself as well, I feel, I feel like you and, you know, you know, Jeremy Schneider over at Personal Finance Club, I've been consuming a lot of your information as just reinforcement to, okay, you know, this is what we predicted. This is how the market works. This is the regression to the mean, as you were mentioning. 
it is okay. You know, stick to the plan because honestly, my plan was, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 year plan. By the end of that, you're going to come out on the right side. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and then like, it's, people will be like, well, are you, are you sure? And the answer is like, well, I'm not sure, but I don't know what any sort of better plan is, mm-hmm. right? Like I cannot guarantee that 30 years from now, the stock market will be higher than it is today. I can't guarantee it, but I think it's the best probabilistic bet of any other bet out there, right? It's, it's not a guarantee, but you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that I don't know what else to do with my long-term money other than put it in some sort of stock or stock-like portfolio. So let's dive into that a little bit deeper. Like you, mm-hmm. the question I get most frequently from listeners or the audience or people that just know that I'm a personal finance junkie is, where do I start? I want to start investing. I just don't know what to do. And you have this concept of financial order of operations. Can you expand on that a little bit and then maybe walk us through some of the first few steps in that? Sure. sure. So the, the financial order of operations, it's, it's useful for both beginning investors and really just anyone who's beginning their personal finance journey. And I separate those two ideas out. You know, investing is more about trying to grow your money, whereas personal finance is more about how to deal with the day-to-day uh, aspects of your money. So something like budgeting, that's a personal finance topic. What bank account should I have? That's a personal finance topic. Investing is more of like the 401k, IRA, brokerage account, stocks, bonds, crypto. So the financial order of operations is based on the mathematical order of operations in a way, you know, please excuse my dear aunt Sally, yep. MDAS, what was that? Parentheses, exponentials, multiply, divide, that, that thing. So it basically says, if you have money that you don't know what else to do with, let's say I just gave you a pot of $10,000 right now, Justin, you might have this question, well, shoot, what's the best thing that I can do with my money? Like, and, and, and how do I compare all these different options and how do I order the different options I have in terms of best thing I should do. And then once that's covered, the next best thing I should do all the way down the line. So the financial order of operations would start and say, listen, Justin, do you have a budget? That's for me, that's step zero. It's like, do you, do you have a budget? And we, we can get back into budgeting later. I'll, I'll move on to step one. So step one, it's create a small emergency fund. So you should have, and this is for all, for all listeners out there, at least for most listeners, you should have somewhere around $1,000 sitting in your bank account that is earmarked for the express purpose of, I need money really fast because something bad happened in my life. My car broke down and I need $800 to the mechanic today to cover that expense. So it provides you this little mini safety net. And then, okay, once you have that covered, so let's say, Justin, let's say you were a blank slate and I just gave you $10,000. Your first thousand, maybe two thousand, would go to cover that step, right? And then you'd move on to step two of the financial order of operations: pay off all your high interest debts. I would ask you, Justin. Well, listen, are you in credit card debt? Because credit card debt typically has an interest rate of sixteen, eighteen, twenty percent per year, and paying off that debt is the next smartest thing that you can do with your money. So I tell you to do that. And we would just keep going right down the line. I think there's maybe 11 or 12 steps, 10 steps in the, in, the, in the little PDF that I put together. It would just help someone figure out the next smartest thing I can do with my money based on where I am in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think your first entry point into investing, probably step three, I believe, was your 401k match because leaving money on the table there, I mean, that's, 
50, even 100% match, you're not going to find those returns anywhere else. But the right. credit card makes sense. And the high interest rate you define is pretty much anything above the, the mean for what should be the standard stock market return. So if you have something 10% or higher, you, you're probably considering that as high interest debt. Correct. Right. From, from a mathematical point of view, if you have a debt with an interest rate of right 10% or higher, you're, you're better off paying down that debt than investing money in the stock market. Okay. I would totally agree with that. And actually, and one, one good point that you just brought up, Justin, that made me think is, you know, the steps that I put together, they're up for debate. I have no problem with someone kind of saying like, really, you would put paying off high interest debt ahead of getting your 401k mm -hmm. match? I, depending on who the person is and how much debt they're in, like you said, free money is free money. For yeah. a lot of people, I think getting that 401k match might be better than paying off the high interest debt. So it's like, do you want to switch steps two and three? Sure, go for it. But switching steps two and nine, that's probably where I'd be like, well, there's an order for a reason. <laughs> and, and for the most part, sticking to that order of operations is definitely a, a beneficial structure for someone who has no background in this. So I want to push back on this a little bit as well. Yeah. And so I was listening to a Twitter Spaces replay that you posted on your podcast and you guys were discussing this kind of tried and true method with your financial order of operations. And you mentioned that, you know, if someone came to you with that question, where do I get started? You, you said, go get your 401k match and mm. use it to invest into a total market fund. And then I believe his name was Shadow. He pushed back or he <laughs> countered and said he would experiment early. He would screw up multiple times. He would skip safely investing into the 401k and shoot for the moon. He would try and, you know, try 10 different income streams because you can always invest later. Do you have a counterpoint to that or some other thoughts? You didn't, you didn't elaborate any further on that. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you would also be open and to trying different experiments in that sense too. It's not like you're saying like one way is right and one way is wrong, but what will be your counter back to shadow on this? Mm -hmm. Great question. Everyone's built a little bit different when people in general ask me about my thoughts on, you can call it sandbox investing, play money on the thought of like, listen, I kind of want to invest the way I want to invest. I don't want to follow your boring index fund method. <laughs> One thing I point them to is the wisdom of John Bogle, who was the founder of the Vanguard group, who really was the person who was, you know, he is the, the way that Paul was to Jesus on spreading the word of Christianity. John Bogle is to the index fund, okay? He's That's the hilarious. person who spread the, the, the wisdom of the index fund. And John Bogle would say, yeah, take 5% of your money, do whatever the heck you want with it. Bitcoin, individual stocks, junk bonds, real estate ventures, whatever you want, totally fine. The other 95% of your money should be in some form of tried and true, low cost, doesn't have to be an index fund of stocks or bonds per se, but something that's at least is tried and true that, that you really believe in. I know some people out there might be like, well, what if I want to do residential real estate as kind of a, a, a landlord instead of investing in the stock market? Okay. If, if, you, if you know a lot about being a landlord, go for it because that's a reasonably tried and true investing method. But the idea of someone saying like, well, I'm going to take my money for the next two years. I'm going to take $10,000 a year and I'm just going to do a whole bunch of random stuff with it. My main hesitation and my main pushback there is it, it can be an interesting way to learn, but it's kind of like putting someone in the cockpit at 30,000 feet and saying like, let's go. 
go learn to fly. You're, you're, you're doing it now. You're live. That's a tall order, and it probably doesn't end well most of the time. I think the people who do land that plane successfully, they're like, see, I did it. I learned. <laughs> yeah. And that's a classic case of survivorship bias. I think for most people our age, they're going to lose that money quickly, or they're going to be so far out of their depth that they're not going to have any sort of conviction in their investments, right? Yeah. The, at the first blip of, of turmoil, they're going to cut and run. And, and they're not going to be in a better place for it. And I mean, my opinion is you could do a blend of both. As you mentioned, the 95.5, you can, you can change that. Maybe it's 80-20, sure. maybe sure. it's even 50-50. Yeah. Yeah. I think even a- attacking it from the 50-50 standpoint, this tried and true method, and then also this 50% of your income, especially early on, deploy it at things that find you that you find interest in. But outside of that, I think it's also you're also capable of running experiments with low investments. I mean, I, I will point to your blog and you know running your blog. And I'm guessing you probably had a little bit of a tech stack on the background that you had to, to pay for mm-hmm. your website. And, and you know, I know you have Grammarly and things like that, even though I don't think you had it you know, when you were first starting. But you might, you might need $500 to start this blog and you're running that experiment and you're getting it to a place where it is creating some kind of side stream of income for you without it necessarily being, you know, all of your investment money that you're putting into these certain things that may or may not hit. So I think you could probably do a blend of the two. Totally agree. I do totally agree. And, and like, I, you know, to elaborate, if I were to think about my budget, it's not that 95% of my extra money goes towards investing. Definitely not. Like you said, like, I've got a line item in my budget for the blog. And like, I think about, okay, how am I putting some of my personal income into the business, into the blog? And it's totally true. Like I invest in myself in that way. And yeah, if someone wants to take their portfolio and 80, 20 it, or even 50, 50 it, I totally understand. My recommendation would be take good notes, take really good notes on what investing decisions you're making, why you're making them, understand your own rationale, and then be really honest with yourself in the subsequent years, look back a year later and compare your boring, tried and true investment that John Bogle recommended or whatever it is against your, against your experimental portfolio sure. and, and see how you did and see if your rationale held up. I think yeah. that's also important too. It's not just about the results. It's also about how your reasons held up. Yeah, we... Talked about this on the podcast before. It's in the early 60s, maybe 60 or 61 with a, a gentleman called Darren Shate. He had this concept that we talked about v- near the very end of the episode called decision journaling. And he, mm-hmm. would, he runs a, a tech company out in San Francisco and he writes the decision he makes, why he made that decision. And then he'll postmark that and revisit that maybe six months or a year later, whenever that decision has a little bit more runway to it so that he can start to analyze why did I make that decision? What were my blind spots? Where did it, like, what was the actual result and the outcome? So that could be an interesting thing to go back and, and incorporate into your investing career. But like you as well, I, it's funny you mentioned that. I do the same thing and it's not in my investments, but it's actually in my budget. I have a line item called personal development and it is money that I need to spend on myself. And part of that is anything and everything that I want to spend money on my podcast for. Because I see my podcast as a modality for me to go out and learn and grow and kind of invest into myself. So yeah, maybe it is a good idea to to maybe just make a line item in your budget for that. And you can go and run, maybe it's called entrepreneurship and you put aside, you know, a certain amount of money every single month to just go and try 
entrepreneurship and, you know, ventures, whatever capacity that may look like. Totally agree. I, I don't think you can really, you can't really go wrong with investing in yourself in that way, in my opinion. Do smart things, do, do interesting things. Uh, yeah, pursue your podcast, pursue your blog, pursue whatever it is. It's hard, to, it's hard to misspend money that way if you have room in your budget for it. Definitely. I would agree with that. I, I know you're like a hardcore fanatic for budgeting. You've mm-hmm. tracked every penny since November 2018. <laughs> Do you have any interesting you know, budget lines or you know, weird, just crazy things that you wouldn't share with strangers, maybe only like hardcore personal finance people that you're like, yeah, I do this with budgeting? I mean, I, I would say this, and I think it might be beneficial for people to hear it. I am fully aware that I am on the far end of a spectrum when it comes to budgeting. Yeah, me too. And I don't, <laughs> and I don't by any means, do I hold other people up to that standard. I don't suggest people start with that. I think it's got its benefits. Like, trust me, like if someone were to say, Jesse, I want you to tell me the most beneficial way for me to budget, I would say, well, if you want to put in the time, you should start tracking every penny you earn and spend. It's just a great way to have this confidence that you know where all your money is and you know the reasons or the, the purposes for your money in the future. You know, so like in my bank account right now, I have a few months of emergency funds. But for the months of August and September, I know that for the remainder of August, I have $250 earmarked for groceries. And then when September 1st hits, that account or that bucket kind of resets and I have $350 for groceries in September. And I know that the money in my bank account has already been allocated for those specific purposes. It gives me a lot of confidence. It gives me a lot of faith when I spend my money. I'm not worried about overdrafting or, or anything along those lines. Okay, well, that, that is a little bit of a, a commitment for someone who's new to budgeting. So the one thing I would say to a new budgeter is you can't manage what you don't measure. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can't improve something that you're not even measuring. So at the very baseline, you need to somehow measure your inflows and your outflows. A good starting point that's super basic is every other Friday or maybe every Friday, put a little reminder on your work calendar to simply log into your bank accounts, just your bank accounts, and write down where they're at every Friday. So some Fridays, they might be up because you got paid that week. Other Fridays, they might be down because you've been spending money. And over time, over a series of, say, three months or six months, you're going to get, let's say you do it every Friday. So over six months, you're going to get 26 data points, 26 Fridays in six months. And you're going to be able to see some pattern. When are you spending a lot? Are you spending a lot? Are you saving money? Are you losing money? And that hopefully will influence you to dig a little bit deeper and say, like, oh, crap, most of these months I'm, I'm saving $500 a month. But this most recent month, I actually overspent by $1,000. My account went down $1,000 this month. Where did that money go? How, how did I spend that money? And it might give you a little bit of a barometer to then dig in a little bit deeper and understand not just the broad strokes, but even but the more specific, how are you spending your money on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? 
I see most people, whenever they start budgeting, end up getting deeper and deeper and deeper into budgeting. I helped my girlfriend set up a budget maybe two years ago, and now Mm -hmm. she has like this extensive Google Sheets breakdown of everything. And she wants like more categories so that she can, you know, finally identify more specific things, which I love, but to an extent too. As you mentioned, we might be on the other side or scale of this, the the budgeting sphere of like kind of going too deep into it, which brings me to another thread that I really wanted to talk about to you with because it resonated. It really hit me pretty well, which was this success to stress ratio. Can you explain what that is and kind of put some context around it, maybe with a specific example? Yeah, totally. So that one, I'm sure I got influenced by someone somewhere but I don't remember who. So to some extent, I put my own twist on the success to stress ratio. When I view personal finance and investing, when I'm talking to other people about it, I want them to envision a fraction, which I know, scary, fractions. (laughs) Nobody really likes fractions. We've done a whole lot of math in this episode already, man. We got the order of operations, fractions now. (laughs) But in in the numerator of this fraction, so on the top of this fraction, we have success. And on the bottom of this fraction, we have stress. And whenever you want to increase a ratio or increase a fraction, you want the the one on top to go up and you want the one on bottom to go down. So I want to help people find as much success as they possibly can without necessarily stressing over it. So I want the stress to go down. So the budgeting is, is a perfect example here, Justin, because on the one hand, I would say, If you do want to maximize your success, you should be tracking every single dollar, every single dollar. But for some people, that's going to be a pretty stressful exercise. Mm -hmm. They're going to get flooded. They they lost a receipt. They paid cash, so they don't have evidence on it in the credit card statement. You know, they don't remember how they spent. Like, listen, okay, that that might be too much stress. So instead, let's, let's dial down the success part of it a little bit by being a little bit less detailed. But in the, in parallel to that, we're dialing down the stress a ton. So that's a pretty big win. We're turning down the stress and we're only sacrificing a little bit of success. Mm-hmm. Same goes for investing, right? If someone were to tell me I spend four hours a day researching individual stocks because I think I'm going to beat the S&P 500 returns by 1% per year. Okay, that 1% per year beating the S&P, that's a success. That's good. But is the stress of four hours a day of research, is that worth it? I'm not sure. So for each person, I would say, how much, you know, let's talk about how successful you can be in these various exercises in personal finance and investing. And let's also consider how much stress it's going to add to your life. Let's increase the stress as much as we can while also keeping, did I say that right? We want to increase the success as much (laughs) as we can while keeping the stress relatively low. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought the stress aspect into it as well. I think as a personal finance enthusiast, I sometimes am too heavy on the success piece to it where Mm -hmm. you're getting small dividends of return in terms of success for a substantial amount of stress. And therefore the ratio is actually getting smaller, even though in hindsight, I thought, or in my view, it was getting larger because I was increasing the success piece to it. And, you know, even simple things. Like if you want to use an advisor to some people, for me, it's like, is a 1% or 2% AMU really worth what an advisor can, can provide to me? Maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe not. That's different for everyone. And you need to ask yourself that question is the stress of managing it or a DYI approach to your investing. 
you know, is handing that off to somebody else maybe worth the the stress that it also alleviates in that sense as well? Totally. I can't, just to back up what you said there, Justin, not every person needs a financial advisor, mm -hmm. period. There are tons of people out there. I mean, listen, when I was doing my engineering thing, there's no, there was no way, especially at my age, that I needed or wanted or would have really benefited from a financial advisor. Maybe as I approached retirement, having someone to help me with some financial planning stuff, some of the taxes, withdrawals, yep. estate planning, that gets complex, especially for the average person. But just like you said, for some people, for some people, not all people, paying, like you said, a 1% AUM fee, it helps alleviate their stress a ton. It hopefully helps them achieve a little bit more success. And even if that advisor says, listen, I'm not going to beat the market for you. All I'm going to do is give you average market returns on your investment, but I'm going to charge you for it. So essentially, that person's now going to be underperforming the market. Having a professional by their side is going to alleviate enough stress for them to be good. It might save them money because now they're not going to be tempted to pull their market, their money out of the market when things go badly. They'll have a professional helping them. So there are these, these benefits in, in advising in particular that, right, not for everybody, but for some people, it's, it's a good thing. Is there something that being a, a personal finance content creator, is there something that you disagree with the majority of personal finance writers on? Is there a topic that, that comes to mind whenever I ask that question? There are some really big ones. There are some really big ones, actually. And it's most of the time, it's a perfect example of, I want to say this is uh, Sigmund Freud, the narcissism of small differences. Okay. You heard that? Have you heard uh -uh, that before? No, sounds really interesting. So it's this concept, and I, I don't want to butcher it. I'm not a psychologist, <laughs> but I, I, think I, I think I got the attribution correct. Essentially, when you have two people who are very well-informed on a particular topic, they find they can have very large disagreements about very small differences. Mm. So you can take two evolutionary biologists and one says this thing, thing A, and the other person says something that's 1% different. And they are going to find a way to have a, a heated debate about that 1% difference. Because according to Sigmund Freud, it's like, you know, we, we get a little bit narcissistic and, and self-indulged about these little things that we find different than other people. Okay. So a lot of that happens, in my opinion, in personal finance and investing, where you and I, Justin, could agree on 99% of the stuff that we talk about, but that 1% that we disagree, instead of just kind of letting bygones be bygones, it's very easy for us to have this heated debate. Okay. So that's my preamble, because, <laughs> because you have some, of these, some of these quote-unquote <laughs> debates, yeah, well, I, I do have some. And, and some of them, I just think like, guys, we are making mountains out of molehills here. Yeah. It's not that big a difference. So one that really comes to mind is what I would call the math versus psychology debate. And that debate in simple terms is, should someone do what is mathematically optimal for their finances all the time? Or should they account for their psychological well-being? Kind of goes back to that success to stress yeah. thing. Some people would look at my ratio and they'd say, screw stress. All I want is success. How do I maximize success? And then others of us say, well, hold on a second. If you can't sleep at night because of your portfolio construction, because of how much risk you've taken, is that a good outcome? So personally, on this debate, I fall on the psychology side of this debate where 
I take people's well-being, their mental well-being into account when I'm having conversations with them. But some people, especially people with a math background, people with a, a, a engineering background say, they're like, no, 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 this is, a, this is an algorithm. This is a math problem. Math problems have solutions. And I'm going to find the mathematically optimal solution to get the most money over time. So that's a really big one that I'm not sure if I'm in the minority or the majority on it. All I know is that there is a very vocal opposing side to that debate. Yeah, I see it fairly split in the space. And I've had yeah. probably a dozen personal finance people on. And I bet if I ask them truly what they what what line of thinking they would fall under, it would be pretty split there because I do have many people come on and and especially the little things, if it's got to save you some of your psychological sanity, then mm-hmm. go for it. But mm-hmm. then I there are some significant decisions. You know, the, if you look at the math, there might be a significant difference between one decision and another decision. And and now we're getting into nuance and undefined words because we need to define what significant is because some people want, you know, $50 might be significant right, to another right. person. $50,000 might be significant. So there's lots of nuance in this conversation. But one of my favorites is, I mean, the most polarizing person in our space, Dave Ramsey, and sure. his, his, his thoughts on credit cards. And I think a lot of people disagree with him on his thoughts on credit cards that no one should have a credit card, which is, a, um, as you mentioned, an absolute rule. But you mm-hmm. actually went to defend him on that and thought there was a lot of insight or wisdom that you can gain from creating an absolute rule like that. Right. It's, it's a great thing. That's a fun article, if I remember. I think, do I, is that the one where I compare Dave Ramsey to a Sith Lord? Yes. That, yes. <laughs> because as you Star Wars nerds know, only a Sith deals in absolutes. That's a quote, Star Wars. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So if I remember that article correctly, the problem with leaving loopholes in rules is that too many people tend to think that the loophole applies to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that Dave Ramsey is aware of that. And I I don't think he's necessarily as stiff and as much of a stickler as his radio persona presents. But I think what he's realized is that his listeners tend to be better off when he makes his rules absolute and when he doesn't allow for a loophole because too many people would think the loophole applied to them. And so Dave Ramsey, I think, is great at getting people from negative net worth to zero. He's great at helping people get out of debt. And for people who are in debt, I think cutting their credit card is more often than not the right thing to do. Totally agree. Totally agree. It might not be right for 100% of people, but it's right for 80 or 90% of people. And you know what? If, if, 10% of people cut their credit cards when they really shouldn't have because of Dave Ramsey's absolute rule. That's an unfortunate consequence of of his advice. But I think on the whole, his advice is good when it comes to getting out of debt. eh, When it comes to the investing stuff, I have my my questions for him, we'll say. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, rulemaking is really hard, Justin. You know, I, I found it's really hard. And like, it's funny, I, I see it every day when I think about even stuff like corporate rules. Like, why does a giant corporation make a certain rule? Why are they so stiff? Why can't they make allow room for loopholes? And I just think it's because, yeah, too many people tend to think the loopholes apply to them. Yeah, I would agree. I see it most frequently applied in my life in the health space. You know, mm-hmm. I need a, I, I'm definitely a, a, you know, bright lines or a rule maker that I, you know, have to set something and then I just don't really waver from that. It helps me a lot in the health and wellness space because that is probably one of the most crippling spaces where I'm like, eh, 
maybe this is when I make an exception for this certain thing. So I've always loved like the um, 75 hard challenge, if you know of that, where it's like, here are the five rules that you have to do every single day. And um, they do that over a 75 year period. And he is the creator of it is pretty strict on like, no, this is like, if you miss this, there's not like a, you get a pass, like you restart at zero and you start the the whole process again. And I like the people that go pretty hardcore into 75 hard, but once again, I'm also open to it. If, if before you set out on it, you want to redefine what some of the rules are, as long as they are definitive rules, and then you're living by that, don't redefine the rules once you're in the middle of a tough spot. You know, if right. there's something you want to live by, then, then go for it and make it. Can I ask, what are the five rules? Uh, let's see. You have to drink a certain amount of water every day. You have to uh-huh. do two workouts, two 45-minute workouts. One, um, one of them has to be outside. Read 10 pages of a personal development book, pick a diet and stick to that diet. So he gives you mm-hmm. some flexibility there, but you have to decide up front if mm-hmm. it's keto or no sugar or, you know, no eating after six o'clock, whatever. You define that ahead of time and then okay. stick to it. And then I'm missing one more out there. If I remember, I'll, I'll drop it in. Okay. So um, That's interesting. Yeah, well, I, diet's a great one. I have struggled on the diet side, not to get away from personal finance stuff. No, go ahead. I've always struggled as a dieter. And one reason why is because I'll, I'll, it's my, it's my type one and type two thinking. It's my Danny Kahneman, my current brain versus my later brain. It's very easy for me right now, Justin, to say to you and say to the listeners, you know what? I'm going to have nothing but healthy food the rest of the day. Future me, (laughs) present me planning for future me. It's very easy to say, I'm going to have healthy food the rest of the day. But when future me is looking at a menu today, when I sit down with someone for, for dinner, that person in the present then is going to have different things on his mind, right? And I've always struggled with that. And I think to some extent, if I had been, or if in the future I, I am more firm and strict with my rules, it would benefit me 100%. So wrapping up this conversation, one more thread for you. You're getting married in like a month yes. now. Like it's yes. pretty soon. It's coming five, up. Five weeks from Friday. Oh man. Yeah. And at this point in time, when people are listening, you will have been married. First, congrats, man. Second, you. anything changing for you in the personal finance space now that you are getting married, things you're reconsidering, thinking about having a conversation with your partner about? Yeah. There's going to be some stuff, uh, some things already have changed, and I'm sure some things are going to change. Over the last, I would say, six months or so, or or maybe even from the time we got engaged, so it's been 10 months since our engagement, I would say our finances have combined, or at least we're both more flexible with like, sure, even though I've covered the last, even though I've bought the last two dinners, I'll buy this one too, because let's be honest, it's the same pot of money, right? But I do think or at least I hope, we'll see. There, there are some conversations that still need to be had when it comes to something like, okay, I've got this kind of detailed budgeting system. My fiance, she doesn't per se have that detailed budgeting system. She's more of a, the other budgeter who I talked about earlier. She reviews her credit card statement in detail every month. And some months she's like, oh, I, I need to pull it back a little bit next month. That's kind of her approach to budgeting. And I think maybe we have to find some happy medium just so that we're spending responsibly, saving responsibly, and still doing the stuff that we both love to do. That'll be an ongoing conversation, one that we've kind of started, but I still think the lion's share of that conversation lies ahead of us. What about uh, life insurance? If I am getting my facts correct, I don't think you had life insurance up until now. Are you changing your mind about that? 
Yeah, you're right. I, I currently do not have any life insurance. She and I will probably have to talk about it. I definitely think if and when we have kids, for me, I'm, I, I, and I'm going to try to encourage her. I think we'll both probably buy life insurance policies at that point, term policies, especially if we potentially move into a bigger house, which is something that we've been talking about doing. And now we've got that mortgage over our head. That might be a good time for me, even if there aren't kids in the picture, to buy a, a life insurance policy at least the size of the mortgage. So that in the unfortunate circumstances that I get hit by a bus, or what I'm really hoping for is, if, you know, if I'm going to die in an unfortunate way, I want it to be a meteor strike. <laughs> I, I just want to go out in a blaze of glory and be like, wow, the first human who got hit by a ping pong sized meteor directly in the forehead. <laughs> if it happens, then I want to make sure that my fiance and the house that we move into is going to be covered. Um, so that might be our, our impetus. <laughs> and an epic story, though. <laughs> and an epic story. An epic story. It'd be great for blog traffic, I can tell you that much. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> you have to like pre-write that one and yeah. get it scheduled and whatnot. So... <laughs> Well, Jesse, I had a blast talking to you, man. I'm, I'm really excited to stay connected and continue to consume your content on your blog. If people are interested in that, they can easily find your blog, bestinterest.blog. And then you're super active on Twitter. I love some of your quick, short, quibby um, tweets. And they can find you bestinterest underscore JC. And that's the letters J and C. Anything else you'd like to add or point people to? Justin, thank you so much for having me on. This was a blast. Nothing else to add. I really appreciate it. I got uh, one more final question for you, Jesse. All right, um, let's do it. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Great question. Cool question. I gave it some thought beforehand. The easy answer is like, oh, teach personal finance and yeah, investing basics. But I don't want to. I don't want to use that answer because I think there's a cooler answer out there. I think that teaching a course that would be some sort of like applied statistics. It'd be how to think about the world in a statistical and probabilistic manner to help you understand how you know. I think too often as humans we attribute luck to skill and skill to luck. We look at the weatherman who said there was an eighty percent chance of rain. And when rain doesn't come, we're like, that idiot, what is going on? And I just, I look around me and I just feel that too many people don't, they don't have even a basic grasp of stats and probability. Not that I'm an expert on it, but I think I have a solid grasp of it. And it helps me understand the world in a really fundamental way. And I, I would love to teach that to other people. I love that answer. Very creative <laughs> answer and a great class for decision-making and most of the answers, the general theme on these answers are usually something that applies to a higher level decision-making, kind of a, a skill within side of decision-making. And I think that class would fit very nicely in there. So Jesse, perfect answer, man. Thank you, Justin. You're exactly right. It really is decision-making. There's a great quote, and maybe this is a good, good quote to end on. It's from Annie Duke, who's a, a famous poker player, and now she's an author. And a lot of investors love Annie Duke's writing. and the quote is something like, the only, the only thing we can control is our decision-making. Everything else is left to luck. Mm -hmm. We have to optimize our decision-making. Stats and probability help us do that. Perfect tee-up. I got a former top 20 poker player coming on the podcast here. This will be not the awesome. next episode, but the episode after that. So just a nice teaser for people that are, are looking ahead. And we're going to be talking a lot about 
statistical decision-making, systems thinking, all of that. I'm really excited for that conversation because I, I realize poker players have this skill really dialed in. I'm excited for it too. <laughs> You're exactly right. Poker I'll share you away whenever it comes out. Cool, thank you. <laughs> Jesse, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening, guys. That was pretty good, wasn't it? So thanks again, Justin. Thanks for having me on The Struggle is Real. It was an awesome conversation. And listeners, thank you for listening to the Best Interest Podcast. As always, you can reach out to me via email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. I'd love to hear what you think. I love your feedback that you send me. And I'm always happy to answer your questions here on the podcast. So thank you again for listening to The Best Interest Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.